You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles ready, let's turn there now. In Acts chapter 9, verse 32, Now it came to pass as Peter went through all parts of the country that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. There he found a certain man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. So Peter preaching, traveling through the villages. Most of the apostles were doing that. They were you know, little missionaries going throughout Israel. And as Peter left Jerusalem, you might find the habit as we go through Acts to flip to the back of your Bible and look at the, uh, the maps in the back. As uh, he was heading west towards the ocean or the Mediterranean Sea, he, halfway there, he came to a little town called Lydda, and it's there he meets this man, Aeneas. And we see this guy was paralyzed. He'd been bedridden for eight years. And man, we've just been learning so much in the church that, you know, uh, God's ways are not our ways. And sometimes he allows us to go through great, long, extensive periods of suffering so that he can glorify himself in radical ways. And uh, we see that in uh, the woman with the issue of blood. And in Mark chapter 5, how there was a woman that for 12 years she was bleeding and she spent much money on physicians trying to figure out how to stop this health issue and they couldn't do anything. She was in a hopeless situation for 12 years. And then one day she saw Jesus in a great crowd. And so she pushed her way through the crowd and she said, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be made well. And as Jesus is there and there's people thronging up against him, he, he, he turns around and he says, who just touched me? And the disciples said, what are you talking about? There's people thronging against you and you ask who touched you? He says, no, 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 I felt power go forth from me. And the woman says, I'm sorry, Lord, I just knew if I could touch you. And when she touched him, immediately the blood dried up. Immediately she was made well and God was glorified. Acts chapter 3, we have the man that, that was paralyzed for 40 years since birth. And for 40 years, he was known as the guy that sat by the beautiful gate begging alms daily. And one day, the Lord came and he healed this man. And everyone knew he was paralyzed, but then immediately they saw him rise up and walk and leap and praise God. And even the enemies of the gospel said, boy, there's no, you can't argue that a notable miracle has occurred. This guy's 40 years of paralyzed. We've known him since a baby being paralyzed and he's walking right here and we're talking to him. And so I encourage you, as you go through periods of suffering, ask yourself, is this an opportunity that God can glorify himself in my life and in my pain? And here's a guy in Lydda that for eight years had been paralyzed, for eight years had probably been discouraged and feeling useless and feeling like a burden on society. But then the day came when Peter was brought there, and, and Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Jesus the Christ heals you. Man, I love these opportunities that, that God glorifies himself. And personally in my life, I, I'm reminded of when I was in fifth grade, just like a couple days before I went to school for fifth grade, uh, my dad was diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease. And he had a grapefruit-sized tumor wrapped between his heart and part of his lung. And, uh, and I just remember hearing that as a fifth grader and being devastated. And as my dad went in for chemotherapy, the tumor shrunk a little bit, but then started growing again. And so they rushed my dad down to Stanford Medical Center. And my mom and my sisters and I, for about three months, uh, stayed, in, uh, stayed with my aunt and uncle in K-Falls without 
my parents is my dad went to Stanford and they prepped him for a bone marrow transplant. And as he went through just all of this suffering and radiation and, and uh, you know, just being burned by the radiation, being, you know, all of his hair falling out from the chemotherapy and the preparation for the bone marrow transplant, everyone knew it was evident that he had had Hodgkin's disease. And so as he went through this bone marrow transplant period, which is called by the medical community dying to live, as they take out all of your white blood cells and replace them with other white blood cells, uh, you're basically brought to the point of death. And uh, and dad went through that. And he went through this period where we were wondering, is it going to take, is it going to take, is it going to take? And it ended up not taking. Uh, It ended up, you know, we thought it did and we moved back to Oregon and then he had a reoccurrence of Hodgkin's disease. Then they, chemotherapy, 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 and it started going away. It was, it was gone. Then it was back. And probably three different times from my fifth grade through my seventh grade year, my dad had reoccurrence after reoccurrence. And, and finally, in seven, when I was in seventh grade, we just moved to Pullman, Washington. My dad had been accepted into the vet school, veterinary school, without an interview. God opened up the door for him to become a veterinarian. And he was in Washington for a, a small animal, uh, two years of small animal medicine. And it was my first day in a new junior high. And my mom came to pick me up and she had her big sunglasses on and she was sobbing. And I knew I'd, we'd been there five, six times before where uh, we'd had the conversation, you know, your dad has the disease again. Your dad has cancer again. And, uh, but this time, my dad went in and the cancer had spread all over his body. He had about 100 little tumors all over his body. And this doctor, we call him Dr. Death, told him, it's done. Go back to your family's ranch. Get your affairs in order and be ready to meet God. And my dad said, that's not what God's told me to do. The Lord told me I'm going to be a veterinarian and he's going to heal me. And so we went to a church up in Pullman and my dad was prayed over, laid hands on by the elders of this church, anointed with oil. And that day, my dad was freed from Hodgkin's disease, never to have it again. And he walked into Dr. Death and he said, how am I doing, Doc? And Doc said, you don't have any cancer, <laughs> you know? And my dad never had Hodgkin's disease again. My dad healed him of Hodgkin's, or God healed my dad of Hodgkin's disease. And throughout his life, it was a testimony of validation of the gospel, of validation of the resurrected Jesus of Nazareth. And my dad would testify, I was dying. I I had had a bone marrow transplant. I had 13 holes drilled into my pelvis and had marrow sucked out and marrow put in. And uh, Jesus healed me and Jesus glorified and people got saved through my dad's testimony. But if we just wanted, Lord, take this away right now. We don't, we don't want to have any suffering whatsoever. No way. And God was using it to glorify himself. And here Aeneas, you know, paralyzed in bed, Peter comes and says, you know, Aeneas, Jesus, the Christ heals you arise and make your bed. And then he rose immediately. I love Peter because man, he's an extension of Jesus's ministry on earth, just like we are. And Peter, man, he just kind of repeats what Jesus said. You remember in Luke, when the, when the friends lowered their buddy down to Jesus and Jesus said to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven you, which was the real issue here. And then he said, arise, take up your bed and walk. And the man picked up his bed and walked. Well, what happens with Aeneas? Arise, make your bed. And then he arose immediately. 
You know, we see that a biblical healing, a healing where God has healed me, it's a healing. You know, it's, it's whatever that issue is, it's taken away. It's not rise up and walk. And so you're kind of dragging your knee on the ground and pulling on someone's, he healed me. Did you get that on camera? Okay, good. Yeah, woo! You know, it's immediately rise up, walk, evident to everybody who's a witness that this guy who had a total condition is completely changed and restored. And that's what happened with Aeneas here. So all, verse 35, who dwell at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. What do miracles do? What do healings do? These are all things that validate. Are you guys getting tired of hearing that yet? I mean, every week we're talking about miracles. We're going through the book of Acts. You see miracles all the time. Miracles aren't just to get us really psyched. Ah, you know, miracles are to say, hey, I'm preaching Jesus. And in his name, he's healing this person. In his authority, in his power, this person's healed or this person's risen from the dead or whatever it might be. And it all shows you that the word I'm telling you, it's truth. The word I am telling you is validated. And so, you know, all who dwelt there saw and believed and turned to the Lord. Awesome revival there. We see another radical miracle that the Lord worked through Peter here. Verse 36, at Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, beautiful name, which is translated Dorcas, you know. And uh, because I'm putting the youth pastor years behind me and I'm, maturing, I'm not going to make a joke about her name, okay? We're just going to, but seriously, okay. No, uh, Tabitha and Dorcas actually mean in the Greek, it means gazelle. You know, gazelle, this woman, she, and she was a gazelle. You know, she was beautiful. She was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. Man, she, people loved this gazelle. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. And when they'd washed her, they laid her in the upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went to them. And when he'd come, they brought him to the upper room and all the widows stood by him weeping and showing the tunics and garments, which Dorcas had made while she was with them. And man, just this woman that they loved and look what she did. And what are we going to do? She's gone. She's gone and, and just grieving and mourning. But it says, but Peter put them out and knelt down and prayed. You know, again, Jesus is just extension. He's remembering, what did Jesus do in this situation? Well, I'm remembering Mark chapter 5, when Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, came and called for Jesus to come heal his daughter. She died. And so Jesus is on his way, and that's when the woman with the issue of blood touched him and kind of delayed his coming. And when he got to Jairus's house, there were all of these wailers and weepers and mourners there. And it was the custom of the day to actually pay people to come into your house and just mourn and grieve. And so these people that are, wah, 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 you know, squirt the water in again. Oh, gosh, oh, you know. Um, but as they're wailing, Jesus comes in and the wailers said, she's already dead. Oh, yeah. And he says, hey, guys, be of good cheer. She's not dead. She's only sleeping. Are you telling me I don't know my business? That girl is dead, you know, and, uh, and Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to put the mockers out. I'm going to put the wailers and the weepers out. And so they, she, he, he put them out and then he knelt down beside her and he said, Talitha Kumi or Talitha arise or little girl arise. 
And so Peter's here, and you know, he's in Joppa, and there's Dorcas, you know, laying dead on the ground. And, and okay, what did Jesus do? What, you know, okay, okay, I'm kneeling down and praying. And then, okay, he said, Talitha, just happens this girl's name is Tabitha, happens to work, Lord. Okay, Tabitha, arise. And so, um, and so she opened up her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And uh, then he gave her his hand, and he lifted her up, and when he called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. Again, notable miracle. They knew that she was dead, and here she is, up and walking around, evident that something had actually happened here. And so it became known throughout all of Joppa, and many believed in the Lord as the gospel was validated. And so, you know, we ask ourselves, man, you know, here in Prineville, in my circle that I'm in, I don't really see this kind of stuff happening very often. I mean, I can't remember the last time I prayed for someone and they rose from the dead, you know, or someone and they were healed of cancer or whatever. And uh, does God even do these things anymore? And, you know, it's my belief that he does because I've seen it. I've seen it with my dad. I've seen it. And I remember one of my experiences as a three-year-old youth pastor. I was a youth pastor for three years. And I got a call to go to the hospital and pray for a lady that had had cancer or had a tumor and uh, the doctors were going in to take it out. It was a massive tumor and I was just going to go pray for her. And I went in there. I'd never met this lady before. I go in and just have a good time of fellowship with her and I pray for her and I leave. And the next day I get a call and she's screaming on the other line. And she said, Rory, you won't believe this. I went in for my surgery and as the doctors were prepping me, they found that there was nothing there. I didn't even have to have the surgery. The, the tumor was gone. And I'm driving. What did you just say? You know? And radical, I've seen it happen. And many of you have seen, seen miracles happen like this or healings occur. And, uh, and you know what? I, it, if you've been to other countries, you see it seems to be happening more frequent. And not just healings, but all sorts of miracles and workings of the Lord supernaturally. Uh, you see it a lot more in other countries. Now, why is that? Why does that seem? I'd say, you know, one of the things is possible lack of faith or doubting on the Christian's part. Uh, you know, I'm not saying, well, you're not healed because you don't have enough faith. You know, this is just one of the things that it could be that we don't even oftentimes think to pray for somebody that's sick or ill. We go right to the doctor, but no, it's too awkward to go into the prayer meeting and have them lay hands on me and pray for me. I'm going to the doctor. Okay, well, don't expect anything super great, you know, lack of faith. Uh, then we have that some of our, um, you know, we're dependent upon the doctor. You know, our dependency is not on the Lord. Our dependency is on the doctor, the clean hospital. I mean, it's so shiny when you go in there. And they got the little squirt bottles of hand soap that keeps you from getting that bird flu. Or, you know, that's the place I'm putting my trust in. You know, or, you know, oh, I, we're dependent. We're good. To, we don't need God for radical things. We've got the government to, to, you know, take care of us. And I'm on WIC. What else do I need? Or I'm on disability. Who needs Jesus? And we as Americans are so comfortable and so dependent on outside sources that we don't have a desperate grasp and need for Jesus. So often, most of us don't. 
And so, you know, I believe it's some of those reasons that we just don't see that as often. But to say that God doesn't work like this anymore is to just not know at all what God's doing in the world because he's doing radical things. And, and you know, man, it's such a warning for us to just always be open to what God wants to do and on a biblical level, like, you know, on a biblical level. Lord, I'm reading about healing. I don't see anywhere in the scriptures you say that you're not going to heal anymore. And so, Lord... I'm open to what you want to do through healing, and I'm not even going to ask. And Lord, I never want it to be said of me or of our church that we were lacking in faith, that we were doubting. Lord, we want to be, have great faith. We want to be always expecting you to do great things. And Lord, we don't want to be dependent upon institutions or governments or programs or even, you know, the, the, the church. I'm dependent upon the church. No, we need to be dependent upon Jesus. And always be open to that. And, uh, and, and man, just say, Lord, if you want to work right here in Prineville, here we are. If you want to do these types of things in Prineville, here we are. And, um, you know, one of the, one of the arguments, which uh, I, I some partly agree with and partly disagree with, would be that, you know, back in the day, they didn't have the Bible. They didn't have an established, this was a new idea, the gospel going around. And so the miracles, as they validated the gospel, it was just for the apostles to kind of have like God's stamp on their ministry. And I'd say, yes, but we never read of that ending for the church. In fact, we read of promises that it would continue for the church. And so, uh, yeah, lots of it happening in the book of Acts. But uh, man, it's just... I think you just can't say that he's done doing that today. And personally, my testimony, um, I, I can't say that. So, you know, all of these things, these miracles, it wasn't just to create a hype, but it validated the gospel and it increased people's faith and many believed on the Lord. Verse 43, so it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon, a tanner. And uh, we're going to see in chapter 10 that God is doing a work in Peter. He's changing Peter's mindset. And uh, normally, Peter wouldn't stay with a tanner. You know, a, a, a tanner or a taxidermist working with dead animals and dead animal skins. To the Jews, that was unclean. If I touch a, a dead animal, I'm ceremonial unclean. You know, I'm staying away from the tanner's house. And yet, Peter, the Lord's doing something in Peter on a small scale right here at the last verse in chapter 9 where he's staying with a, a tanner. And we're going to see that work that God's doing in Peter just explodes throughout chapter 10. You know, as, as these tanners would work with dead animals and, and flesh. And I was reading, even reading today that, uh, you know, one of the, the uh, mixtures that they would use to cure hides would be like dog dew and uh, boiled vinegar with rusty nails in it, you know, and they kind of... I don't know who thought up that little concoction, but Peter would normally be like, whoa, something's going on in here. I'm going to find the best Western, okay? And um, so the Lord's doing something in Simon, or doing something with Peter. Verse 10, or chapter 10, verse 1, there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius. He was a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. So Cornelius, a Roman, which made him a Gentile. He was a centurion, which meant that uh, he was a captain over uh, a hundred people. Uh, he was a mighty man of valor. And man, centurions, even in the scriptures, Luke chapter 7, Matthew chapter, I think, 20, 24, these, uh, these centurions were well-respected and spoken well of in scripture. They were, they were men that, you know, they were uh, decent guys, you know. And uh, the Roman historian Polybius says this about 
um, centurions. They were not so much venturesome daredevils as natural leaders uh, of a steady and sedate spirit. Not so much men who initiated attacks and opened the battle as men who will hold their ground when hard-pressed and ready to die at their posts. So, you know, this, this centurion, this Cornelius, he was the Italian stallion, you know. He was a guy that was bold and brave and, you know, uh, uh, quite, quite a role model, you know, for the kids, you know. And, uh, and so he was a, a ruler over this Italian regiment. He was a devout man. So we're going to, there's a little list of some qualities about this guy. He's a devout man, which speaks of he feared the Lord. He had a reverence for the Lord. And it actually goes so far as that it's a reverence that changes a man's actions. Somehow this centurion who was brought up in Rome and, uh, you know, many gods was the way to go. And he had come down and been stationed down in Israel and had been, you know, introduced to Yahweh had been introduced to the God of the Jews, this one powerful, holy, all-knowing, all-powerful, almighty God. And he says, this is what I'm talking about. You know, and he, he began to grow. He began to learn about God. And as he was, you know, he became, he let God work in him. He was, God was changing his actions. He was a devout man. Uh, he feared God with all of his household. So not only was he being changed by the Lord, but he was a spiritual leader of his home. He was a spiritual leader of his home, which is, man, that says a lot because here's a guy that's not even saved yet. And he's leading his home to the Lord. The question is, it's a challenge to us. It's a challenge to me. How about us who love Jesus and know Jesus? Are you being a spiritual leader? Cornelius wasn't. He wasn't even saved yet. You know, husbands, are you reading the word to your wife? Are you washing her in the water of the word that you might present her before God, a, 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 a pure, spotless bride? You know, are you spending time in the word, even with your kids? You know, are you demonstrating to your kids uh, the Holy Spirit in your life and the power of the Holy Spirit in your life? Are you showing your kids and showing your wife how to serve? You know, or is it the wife that's leading you? Man, I know so many guys that when they got married, uh, all of a sudden they, they weren't in fellowship. Probably a quarter of the amount of time they came to fellowship. And, uh, oh, well, my wife. It's like, dude, you're the spiritual leader. You are the one that's going to be accountable for God. Get your wife in the word. Get your kids before Jesus. You're going to stand before the Lord. How, 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 how are you presenting your bride here? He led his family before the Lord, and, uh, and his whole household feared God. He gave alms generously. He was a giver to the people. You know, he, he knew that he could never outgive God, but he was sure going to try. You know, he was a guy who never had the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, you know, reading about, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the cheerful giver that God loves. He never had the, the part about, man, giving according to your ability and above your ability, being freely willing and not giving out of begrudging obligation. But the Lord loves that cheerful giver. He hadn't had that text in his house, but God was working that in him and making him this cheerful giver, generous to the people. And it says that he prayed to God always. We're going to read in a little bit that God heard those prayers and God received those alms. Interesting place to be in the word. 
You know, what's with this Cornelius guy? Was, was he saved? What, you know, was he righteous before he ever had heard the gospel? He's a Gentile. You know, if he would have died that day, would he have gone to heaven? Was he, was he a good man? What's with this guy? And, uh, well, we know this. We know that he wasn't a good guy. Because there are no good guys. Romans chapter 3 tells us that. There is none good. No, not one. There's none who seeks after God. You know, everything they say, it's like an open tomb, you know. Uh, There's none who seeks after God. And we know John chapter 6 verse 44 tells us that no one can come to God, but if the Holy Spirit draws him, the Father draws him. So, you know, there's these two pillars that go into heaven that, you know, somewhere before the throne of God they meet. And on one end is God's sovereignty, God drawing Cornelius, God putting a hunger for Yahweh in Cornelius's heart and giving, you know, placing in him this fear for the Lord and a desire to know him. On the other end of things, we have Peter responding. He's being responsible and responding to the gospel. He's, you know, and, and the gospel hadn't even come yet, but he was beginning to work works towards salvation. Not that his work saved him. Don't ever let that confuse you. Was he saved? He wasn't saved. While he was a sincere man, if he would have died that day, he would have gone to hell. While he was a sincere man, you know, and and so many people think, oh, just let people be sincere in whatever they want to believe and they're good to go. Don't be pushing Christianity. Uh -uh. No, the, the Mormons, they're sincere, but they're sincerely wrong. You know, Islam, sincere in what they believe, wrong. You know, Hinduism, Buddhism, whatever it is, if it's not Jesus that the Bible preaches, wrong. And so here, you know, here's Cornelius and the spirit of God is working in him, but he's not saved yet. And the Lord knows that. And the Lord does a radical work here in Acts chapter 10 to save Cornelius. Not only that, Cornelius, we're going to see, is going to be the first Gentile to ever be saved. And he's just the first. He's, I'm so thankful for what's going to happen here. Or we wouldn't be here today for what, but what happened in Cornelius' life. But also, was he saved? No, but I want to let you know some more proof here. As you look over in chapter 11, verse 14, Peter tells us um, what God tells Cornelius here. You know, he says, the Lord told Cornelius that, that Peter's going to come, verse 14, and he'll tell you words by which you and your household will be saved. Not, you're already saved, Cornelius, so don't worry about it. Peter's just going to come along and kind of, you know, disciple you. No, you need to hear the gospel. You need to understand the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And here Peter's coming, he's going to tell you. And then if you look down at verse 18, just the last little phrase, God has granted to the Gentiles, Cornelius's house, repentance to life. It wasn't until Peter came in this chapter that Cornelius had repented of sin and had been given new life in Christ. So here's a man, not good in and of himself, but the Holy Spirit working in him was producing fruits of goodness. And eventually he was going to hear the gospel that was going to save him. So hard stuff. You know, you got God's sovereignty, drawing man and electing man. And over here you've got, well, what does man do? Well, he needs to respond and he needs to believe. And we're going to study in Acts 16, the Philippian jailer saying, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul will say, if you, you know, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. You know, so you, you have to believe to be saved. So the Lord is working this process in Cornelius. And it's a really neat thing to watch. So, Uh, Verse 4, 
or verse three, about the ninth hour of the day, Cornelius saw clearly in a vision an angel of the Lord coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? And so he said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. So God heard these prayers. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging with Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And then we know from verse 11 of chapter 11, or verse 14 of chapter 11, he will also tell you words by which you and your household will be saved. And so verse 7, when the angel who spoke with him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he'd explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. So over on this end of the spectrum, you've got Cornelius and God is preparing Cornelius's heart to hear the gospel. And then he's telling about Peter. And we're going to read right now about God preparing Peter to go to Cornelius to tell him the gospel. Verse 9, the next day as they went on their journey and drew near to the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. So uh, we're going to learn you never want to go up on your housetop to pray at noon. And why is that? Verse 10, because he became very hungry. Okay, man, doesn't that happen to us whenever you go to pray? Growl, 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 you know. Oh, well, can't pray today. Got to go make my sandwich, you know. Um, you know, Peter goes to pray, which is awesome. You know, the man that God uses is a man of prayer. And he goes up on the house to pray. It's noon. He's, you know, Lord, what do you got going on today? Gurgle, gurgle, growl, growl. Oh, wow. Okay, Lord, I'm, man, okay. Hey, can you guys make me some lunch? And um, while they made ready uh, the, the, the food, he fell into a trance. So, you know, this, this word, as I've read it, I've always been like, oh, trance. Oh, okay. That's kind of weird, kind of new agey stuff going on. Or what, you know, what's the, you know, the word in the Greek is ecstasy. You know, some of you have heard that word recently with the nightclub stuff that's been going on, you know. But ecstasy means a displacement of the mind. God took Peter, who was on the mountain or on the top of the house, and he said, you know what? I need your mind here. I need you to, to hear me. I'm going to give you a vision. And so in the vision there, he saw heaven opened. And an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners, descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. So sheet coming down full of all sorts of animals, which we know they're the ones in the Old Testament that, that he wasn't supposed to eat. The Jews weren't supposed to eat these things. And, and, but Jesus is trying to communicate a parable to Peter of what he's working in the world through the gospel. You know, right now, Peter, he's kind of stuck, still stuck in Judaism. He's in the Lord's teaching him, hey, you know what? The law, it's passing away. Now God's showing his grace to the world. You know, so I'm working a work here, Peter. I'm doing a new work and it's going to require your obedience, so rise, Peter, kill and eat these unclean things. And Peter, you know, he, he said, not so, Lord, for I've never eaten anything common or unclean. You know, that's some words that you just don't ever want to have come out of your mouth. Not so, Lord. 
You know, you can say, not so, buddy, you know, or not so, pal, you know, or not so, honey. You don't want to say that, actually. You don't say not so, honey. There's two people you don't want to say not so to. Um, you, know, you don't want to say not so to the Lord. Uh, and, and Peter's learning that. Uh, you know, always foot in the mouth Peter, as I always call them. I've never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, saying, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. And what was, this was done three times, and the object was taken into heaven. And so three times, the vision, the sheet comes down, all the animals, kill, eat. No way! I'm a Jew, Lord! I can't do that! I won't do that! Hey, I'm cleansing these things. I'm, don't call them one more time. No, no! Finally, okay, Lord, what are you, you're doing something here. You're doing something. And this was a parable of basically God had these, these people groups, these other nations, these Gentiles that he was wanting to save. And actually, all throughout the Old Testament, it was his plan to save them. He's a very missional God who wanted to use the Jews to bring the Gentiles to the knowledge of, of God. But the Gentiles, instead of being missionaries, they became prideful in their self-righteousness and began to hate the Gentiles instead. You know, despise the Gentiles. We're not good missionaries to them at all. And so in this parable, he's saying, look, these animals in the sheet, these are all the other nations of the world that you don't want to go to, but I'm telling you to get out there because they need to hear the gospel. It's, the, it's what he's trying to communicate to Peter here three different times. Verse 17, now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he'd seen meant, Behold, the men who'd been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. So how incredible that the moment, the, the Lord orchestrates things so perfectly, you know. Over here, he's been working in Cornelius, the, you know, the, preparing his heart for the gospel. Over here, the next day, he's preparing Peter to go share the gospel. And as he's preparing Peter, the servants are on their way to the house. And right when he's done with the vision, and he's like, what did that mean? You know, who is it? You know, uh, the, the men are at the door. God has been sovereignly orchestrating uh, this whole thing. And they called and asked where Simon, whose surname was Peter, if, was, if he's lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are seeking you. So, you know, the Holy Spirit, man, he's excited about what's going on here, that the gospel's going forth to the Gentile. Everything's being orchestrated. And, you know, the knocks at the door, the servant is opening it. And uh, the Holy Spirit doesn't even let the servant come tell Peter that he's got company. He just says, you've got company. Get down there. Yeah, this is exciting what's happening as the gospel is going forth to the Gentiles. And uh, arise and go down with them and go with them doubting nothing. And how often does God speak something into our heart uh, and we just sense it so powerfully, but we begin to doubt him. You know, and we, I think so many of us are robbed of awesome experiences and opportunities with God because we doubt and we shy away and we won't be bold for him. But Peter here, he, you know, he goes in boldness, you know, go doubt nothing for I've sent them. Then Peter went down to the men who had sent to him from Cornelius and said, yes, I am he who you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius, the centurion, a just man one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nations of the Jews was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from him. 
And so, or to hear words from you. And so we see just the confirmation of the visions happening here. And that's so important as we're seeking the Lord, we're crying out to the Lord, we're wanting visions on what God wants us to do, what he would have us do to get the gospel out there uh, and other things in our life. It's so important to test the visions and to await confirmation and to pray about it and to bring it before even wise counsel and not to just go after every vision. Uh, you know, I'm from a college town and so often we'd have young men who want to get married and young women who want to get married. And, uh, the young men would go to the women and be like, Hey, God's told me that I'm going to marry you. And so often the ladies would be like, eh, honey, cause God hasn't told me that, <laughs> you know? And, uh, so you young ladies, you should remember God will show you, you know, um, don't just, Oh, really? Okay. You know, um, Man, test the prophets. And, uh, you know, the confirmation is beginning to happen. And so, verse 23, he invited them in and lodged them up, uh, and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away with them, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And the following day, they entered Caesarea. Now, Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. Now, this is awesome. Cornelius is a guy who's excited about what God is doing. He's a guy that hasn't been doubting his vision of the angel. He's been faithful to be obedient. And he's so excited because he knows he is going to hear the words by which his family must be saved. And so he doesn't just hog it with his family. He gets all of his friends and a great number of people together to hear the word. Again, here is a man who's not even saved yet, excited about Jesus' plan of salvation, and he's getting all his friends. He's not going to heaven alone, man. He's bringing everyone he knows with him. What an example for us who love Jesus and name the name of Christ. Are, are you bringing anybody to Jesus? Are you bringing anyone, anyone to hear the words of this life? Yesterday, I was out hunting with about four guys from our church and and another guy who's not from our church, uh, in fact, doesn't have any type of faith in Jesus. And uh, on the other hand, he's a complete, basically, pagan sinner right now. Just like all non-saved people. And as we're hunting, and just the language, and you're kind of like, ooh, you know. And then he begins to share that uh, him and his fiance went to Burning Man a couple weeks ago. Which, if you don't know what that is, that's like the epitome of Old Testament paganism and immorality. To anything that you think of, it's happening there. And he's sharing. I'm kind of like, Lord, how do I share with this guy? How do I share you with this guy? I, I, I'm, I'm stumped. And it's, sometimes I'm not stumped. And sometimes I'm stumped. Lord, what should I say? What should I do? And uh, later on, having a conversation with my cousin who's new to town. And I was just like, man, I just didn't know what to say to him. I just want him to be saved. But man. And he goes, well, did you invite him, invite him to come to church tomorrow to hear the gospel? No. <laughs> what? I'm the, ba- I'm the pastor. What, what was I thinking? I'm so stupid. I should have at least invited him to come and hear the gospel. Oh, you know. And, uh, and then I went home and I'm reading again through the chapter. I'm like, oh, even Cornelius did it. And he wasn't even saved yet. Oh. So it's a word for all of us, not just you guys. But man, let's not taste and drink of eternal life by ourselves. Let's bring the world, huh? And so here's all these. their relatives and close friends as Peter was coming in. Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, 
I myself am also a man. And this is a regular occurrence in the scripture, wherever there's an apostle or a notable man of God, you know, the temptation is to fall down and worship them. In a couple chapters, we'll see, you know, Paul and um, I believe it's Silas and they're, you know, in, in Athens and they're telling about Jesus and they, the words that they spoke were so great that they said, hey, it's Zeus and Hermes. They're, they're gods. Let's worship Paul, you know, let's worship Silas and let's sacrifice. And they brought animals to sacrifice to them. And like, "Uh uh-uh, no, we're just men. We're just servants of Jesus. Worship Jesus. You know, then in Revelation chapter 19 and chapter, you know, in 19, John has the revelation of the uh, marriage supper of the lamb and Jesus coming to judge uh, the world. And John is so overwhelmed that he bows down at the feet of the angel who's showing him these things and starts worshiping the angel. And the angel says, what are you doing? Get up. I'm just a fellow servant. Worship God. Two chapters later, John's given the vision of the new, the, the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and the new earth. And again, he's so overwhelmed. He starts worshiping the angel. And the angel's like, oh gosh, get up. I remember what happened to Lucifer when he started wanting worship. I don't want God to catch this happening. You know, Get up, get up, get up. I'm just a fellow servant. Worship God. Don't worship me. That's exactly what Peter said. And man, we live in a few centuries of Peter worship. We live in a few centuries of saint worship and praying to the saints. And, you know, uh, you can go to uh, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome today, and I have some friends that have been there, and there's a statue of Peter there that uh, uh, every day there's, you know, a hundred-yard line of people consistently throughout the day that are just coming in, coming in, and kissing the statue's feet all day, every day. That's what happens in St. Peter's Basilica. And they said, you go there and Peter doesn't have any feet left. They've kissed his feet so much that the, the feet are gone. He's feetless, you know? And if Peter could come alive as a statue, you know, and say, what are you doing? You know, I'm just a man. I put my britches on just like you do every day. Don't worship me, worship God. And man, we have such a tendency, not just with the the apostles, you know, or the saints, but, you know, we can put men of pastors, uh, you know, notable men, whatever. We begin to think that they're the Christ and they'll always be there for me. And they're the one that I can turn to. I'm not, you guys. I'm going to let you down. I'm never going to be there for you in the way that you need me to the best. Get your eyes on Jesus. You know, get your eyes on Jesus. He's the one to be worshipped. He's the one in whom you can put your trust. He's the one that's going to comfort you. And anybody else, it's idolatry. You keep your eyes on Jesus and you don't worship man. Worship God. And uh, verse 27, as he talked with him, he went in and found many who'd come together. And then he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation but God shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Now, this wasn't the law of Moses that said not to keep him in any company with the Gentiles. It was the law of tradition that the rabbis uh, instituted. And so, you know, they, they'd been, you know, missing out on incredible missionary opportunities. But Peter's finding those opportunities are still there. And notice he's been given understanding of the vision at this point, that it wasn't about pigs and ostriches, you know. It was about people, men and women of all sorts of different nations that don't call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked then, for what reason have you sent for me? 
So Cornelius said, four days ago, I was fasting until this hour. So not only is he a man of prayer, a man of giving, a man who fears the Lord and is devout, but he's a man who has that practice, that discipline of fasting in his life. And I was fasting uh, about this hour, the ninth hour, and I prayed in my house. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you've done well to come. Now therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. He says, good job in coming. This is so cool how God worked it all together. Now here we are. Start talking, buddy. Notice he says, we're in the presence of God. We want to hear from the Lord here. You talk, but let's hear from God. You know, that's what needs to happen in the church. And so Peter opened up his mouth and said, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. Man, in truth, I am witnessing today an incredible thing that there's not Jew or Gentile, male or female. You know, man, I'm not going to call anybody common. I'm not going to call anybody unclean. The gospel is for everyone, whether you're from south of the border or north of the border or east of the Mississippi or from the continent of Africa, you know, whether your skin is this color or that color. If you're a man or a woman, man, God wants to save you. He has got no partiality. There's no, uh, you know, national barriers in God's mind. He's not an American. I hate to break it to you guys. He wants the whole world uh, to be saved. And, uh, man, I, I just know God shows no partiality now. And, uh, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. You know, we know from the contest of Scripture, he's not saying, just be a good worker and, you know, you'll work your way to heaven. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, man, there's a process that's happening uh, in, in people's lives, like there was in Cornelius, of fearing God and working righteousness. And um, the, uh, the word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. We're going to see eight main points to, to Peter's, and they're quick points, uh, eight main important points to Peter's message here. Uh, as number one, he lifts up Jesus as the Lord of all. He's the Lord of all. In verse uh, 37, that you would know which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, a baptism of repentance, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Uh, and, and so the second thing that he, that he lifts up Jesus in is he lifts up Jesus as a man, a man who, you know, he was fully God, fully man. He had a hometown, Nazareth. He had parents and an occupation. And, you know, he, he had stomach aches just like everybody. You know, he was a man. Uh, and, and, and so an important part of the gospel is that Jesus is fully God, fully man. He's Lord of all, and he's a man from Nazareth. And then it goes on to say, um, that he was anointed, he was a man anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And, uh, you know, he lifts up Jesus as the one who is stronger than sin and stronger than the devil. 
And we are witnesses of these things, which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. So he lifts up Jesus as the man who was good. There was no sin in him. There was no spot or blemish in Jesus, but he was murdered. He was crucified. He was hung on the tree, but he didn't stay dead. Verse 40, him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all people, but to witnesses chosen before God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So put an R by verse 40, because again, they're preaching the resurrection. Peter preaches the resurrection, and he lifts up Jesus as the resurrected Lord. Not dead in the ground, but he's alive. And Peter was just one of many witnesses who saw him and ate and drank with him after the resurrection. Verse 42, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who is ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. So he lifts up Jesus as the one who is going to be the final righteous judge. And man and woman, they're going to stand before him. And they're going to be declared guilty or innocent. Those that are innocent are the ones that have uh, through faith, believed upon Jesus and the sacrifice that Jesus made for them on the cross uh, to be the atonement, to the, the washing and cleansing of their sin. You know, and, and that belief just leads to fruits of righteousness that just fall off of a Christian's life. But those that are guilty are the ones that reject the message of the gospel. They're disobedient to the message of the gospel. They're disobedient uh, to the word of God. And they're going to be judged on that day by Jesus. He's the righteous judge. And Philippians tells us that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And uh, so he lifts them up as the righteous judge in verse 43. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will have remission of sin. So he lifts Jesus up as the one whose name man must believe in if they're going to be forgiven of their sins. And what do they need to believe? Just, we've been over this a couple weeks ago, just believe in Jesus? Oh yeah, he was a guy that lived. Okay, I believe, you know. Or, or what is belief? Belief is, and a great way to look at it, these eight things that, uh, that Peter's preaching. I believe that you, Jesus, are the Lord of all. I believe, Jesus, that you were a man, you're fully God, and you're fully man, and you lived in Nazareth, and you lived a good, perfect, spotless life, but you were murdered and hung on the tree. You were crucified. But I believe, Lord, that you are stronger than sin. You're stronger than the devil, and you didn't stay dead, but you rose from the dead. I believe that, Lord. And Lord, I believe that, that through faith in your name, I believe you're going to judge the world. And I believe that, you know, you're going to judge uh, me, Lord. And I pray that I would be found innocent before you because I believe in your name for forgiveness of sins. Or I love the word remission. You know, I remember when my dad, again, when my dad had cancer and he went through that stage after the cancer where it's the stage of remission and they're waiting to see if it'll come back. And at the end of that, remission has occurred. Cancer is gone. And that's what Jesus does. When he forgives us of sin, we're in remission. Cancer is gone. The cancer that leads to death called sin, gone. Taken away from us as far as the east is from the west. Does that describe you today? Be honest with yourself. Is Jesus your Lord of all? 
Do you believe each one of those things about Jesus? And if you do, if you really believe, it's going to change who you are because he's going to change who you are. He's not going to let you continue having a heart of stone. He's not going to let you continue living on and practicing sin with reckless abandon. But he's going to take that heart of stone out and he's going to put in you a new heart of flesh that wants to know him and wants to obey him. And while Peter, verse 44, was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. So just like as as I'm teaching here, these guys believed while the message was going forth. And 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 the Holy Spirit, being so excited, says, man, I will right now that they have the Holy Spirit, that have me poured out upon them for power and for boldness. And so while the message is happening, they're baptized with the Holy Spirit. And that language is even used in chapter 11, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so again, it's just God's not in a box as to when the Holy Spirit is poured out on a believer's life, whether it's at the moment of salvation, whether it's before baptism, whether it's um, after baptism, you know, here we just see, man, God's not in a box. He distributes the gift, the power of the Holy Spirit, the outpouring of the Spirit uh, as he wills. And here he willed it. Verse 45, and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished as many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit or the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the Greek word epi, the epi of the Holy Spirit, the continual filling for power, the torrents of the Spirit poured out upon Gentiles also. I mean, you got to understand what the Jews had believed and what an incredible day this is that now they are baptized with the Holy Spirit. For they heard them speaking with tongues and magnifying God. Tongues, just a manifestation that the Holy Spirit had been poured out. Not the manifestation, but a manifestation uh, that that, uh, the Holy Spirit had been poured out. And and what did the, the, the word of tongues speak? It didn't speak forth rebuke or words from the Lord. It's prayer language to God. It always declares the mighty, magnificent works of God. And you read about that in Acts chapter 2 as well and in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And so, you know, Peter answered, can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who's received the Holy Spirit just as we have, just as we had uh, believed and then went to Jerusalem and waited on the Lord and the Holy Spirit was poured out upon us for boldness to be witnesses just in the same way. These people here have have had the same experience, man. They haven't even been baptized yet. Anyone forbid water? Let's go baptize them. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. And so they were obedient to go out and be baptized. Stuart, if you want to go ahead and come on up and you guys can put your Bibles down. I don't know how I did it, but we're about 15 minutes earlier than the last service. So praise Jesus. I don't know if that's a good thing, but man, so much to respond to the Lord. So much. And Lord, we do want to respond to you today. Lord, when you think of Peter's healing ministry in Lydda and, and, Caesarea, or in, uh, in Joppa, Lord, and how you were having those people suffer so that you could show yourself strong. You could be a, there could be incredible validation of the gospel there. Lord, give us the heart that would be willing to suffer for you, even if it meant just the loss of all things, including our family, Lord. Lord, however you want to glorify your name and get the gospel out, Lord. It's a hard thing to pray, but Lord, we know it's the right thing to pray. It's the biblical thing to pray. That, Lord, you would do what you want 
have your way in us, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would be open to just the work of your spirit, Lord. We would be open and be quick to pray for people for healing. And Lord, be quick to believe you that you can do the miracles, Lord. We don't limit the Holy One of Israel here, God. Lord, we also just, man, we don't want to be guilty of considering people groups as unreachable or gross. I don't want to go talk to them, Lord. Lord, we don't want to have the, the racism, Lord, that's happened in our country. We don't want to have just uh, stereotypes, Lord. But Lord, we want to have your heart for the lost, that we wouldn't see men, but Lord, we'd see souls. Lord, wake us up. Give us visions, Lord, on how we can reach this town of Prineville, on how we can reach this county, and how we can reach the world, Lord. We pray that you would rise up missionaries out of this church to go to other nations, Lord. Lord, that missions would be birthed in this church, overseas missions. And Lord, I just pray that if there's anyone here today that you are not Lord of all to them, you are not man who lived a perfect life, lived in Nazareth, was crucified and rose again and stronger than sin, stronger than the devil, going to be the righteous judge. The Lord, today they will have heard that and they would have believed. Lord, we know that they are without excuse today because they've heard the truth that they will be judged and they will either be found innocent and be taken to everlasting life in paradise or they'll be found guilty and they'll, they'll spend eternity in hell, Lord. They're without excuse. And if that's you today, you're without excuse. You've been told. And I plead with you today to believe on Jesus that you would be in remission of sins, that the cancer of sin would be removed from your life and you would be forgiven and the Lord would remember your sins no more. Today you can have that if you believe in your heart. And if you want to respond to Jesus today, I just encourage you to lift up your hand or stand if you want or come forward. But man, don't sit there and be quiet and don't do anything. I encourage you to respond today. Just lift up your hand and say, Jesus, Rory is talking about me. I want you to be the Lord of my life and I need forgiveness of sins and I want you to change me take out my heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh right now where you're at will you lift up your hand if that's you Lord sees you Lord sees you and believe upon the Lord he's the Lord of your life just allow him to take out the heart of stone allow him to put in you that heart of flesh allow him to regenerate you today anybody else don't let this day pass Believe upon the name of Jesus. You'll know you've believed on the name of Jesus when your life is, man, you're seeing the fruits. You're seeing the, the changed life that Christ has brought. 
Right now, man, believe upon him. Continue believing upon him today. Let's respond to him today. Let's sing. And man, every one of us might have a different area that we just sense the Lord convicting us in. Let's let him change us as we worship. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information about Calvary Chapel or to contribute to this ministry, you can go to our website, www.calvarycrookcounty.com, or you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thanks again for listening, and God bless.